Well, good morning. Good morning. All right. Just want to make sure that we're all awake and uh, excited. So I'd invite you to turn to Psalm 70, sorry, Psalm 46, Psalm 46. And uh, just in terms of uh, being here this morning, I'm thankful to be able to, to be uh, here at the church and, and in particular to, to support not only Matt and his family, but also you. And just really thankful for the, the elder staff here as I walk in. Um, there's a, I've been to several different churches and I've uh, experienced kind of how they do things and uh, the way that they organize this crazy COVID crisis that we've been um, going on for uh, eight months, is it? Um, feels like forever, but the eight months that we've been dealing with this. Uh, and, uh, and so as I've visited several churches, um, you, you get to see like how serious they take it um, or um, all the different things that some churches do uh, and then also what other churches don't do. And so it's kind of fascinating just to see uh, from that uh, level. But I'm just really impressed with how this church is handled uh, having to, to be outside. Now, it does, um, it does in some ways reflect the fact that you have clean air out here uh, and you can breathe and you can even hear the, the birds sing. Uh, Santa Clarita, they choke. Um, and, uh, and so, um, you know, so that, that's a part of it. But, but also just I think the, the prayerful strategy of the elders I think are on display, and just really thankful for that. I want to just publicly acknowledge my thanks uh, for you to to have me here this morning. All right, um, I'm hearing a lot of feedback. Do you hear that as well? Okay. Um, let's talk about crazy. Let's talk about the last eight months. Let's talk about the fact that I have never seen anything as crazy as 2020. In fact, 2020 will be forever known as the classification of all other crazies that come into life. Uh, we'll liken it to, oh, you remember 2020 and how crazy that was. It's nowhere near as crazy as 2020. It will be the standard of crazy. It will be the standard of crisis and chaos. Now you think about um, the businesses that have closed, and maybe some of you have been impacted financially um, in, in your own life because of the shutdowns, or uh, the political nightmare that not just in this state, but all across the country, the riots, the protests, um, the health issues, all of that just... In some ways, and I was, I was talking to my wife a couple of weeks ago and just saying, like, if, if I didn't have my theology in order and my eschatology understood, I'd think that we were living literally in the tribulation period with pestilence and chaos and the nations rising up. And so when you think about this time period, this era, um, when you think about the, the challenges that, 
that we have faced in these eight months, and, and it feels like every month we feel and we hope and we wonder, is this the month that the restrictions are lifted? Is this the month that we go back to normal? And then we're told, this is the new normal. It'll never be different. Uh, and going back to uh, the way that it was, I don't know about you, but that's challenging and difficult to even think through. Even watching the country go crazy and the political side of things to be almost a nightmare at times. And sometimes it's a challenge because it, it, it shakes us, it rattles us, it sometimes causes us to reflect, like, where is our trust? Where's our confidence? Where's our hope? And Psalm 46 is going to be that psalm that recenters us, that brings us back and reminds us several key things. And, and so I just want to talk about Psalm 46 in a moment. And, and as I think through just a, from a, a national crisis to even personal crisis of, of health issues and uh, difficulties and finances and, and all, of, all of that, uh, I'm reminded also when I think of Psalm 46 of that, that famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress. Um, if you know me, I, and most of you don't, but if you do, um, I love all things Germany. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm German, uh, Italian by cholesterol, but German by uh, genetics. And, uh, and so, like, I'm a big fan of Martin Luther, uh, theologically as well. And, and one of the things that I, that I love about Luther is just his, his, uh, his boldness, right? You, you think of this guy that uh, nails 95 Thesis on a door um, and kind of stands up and draws the line and says, um, you know, no more. Uh, that kind of a guy, bold, um, sometimes if you read him, sometimes like a blunt object, um, like the very hammer itself that he used to nail the 95 Thesis, uh, Luther was, was, was a bit crass. He was a bit um, challenging. He was a bit difficult. Um, and, and when you read him and when you read about his life, uh, you start to understand that, that Luther also went through a lot of difficulties and challenges and crisis. Um, it's not just the fact that he had to stand up against the Catholic Church. It's the fact that he lost friendships even as he was um, sorting out his theology. And, and as the Lord start, started to open up his eyes to understand salvation by faith, as he started to work through that we are declared righteous by faith and not what, what we do, um, he started to, to, to lose his friends. He lost his, his position in, uh, as a Bible teacher um, in the local university, which, by the way, those Bible professors, uh, they tend to, to be the most trouble, right? And so he, he loses his, his position. Um, all sorts of things are happening in his life, both internal and external. Um, just give you a couple, for instance. You know, Luther lived through a pandemic, more like an epidemic, but um, the Black Plague, the bubonic plague that killed millions and millions and millions of people. In fact, Luther, while he was in his, uh, 
in his little town, Wittenberg, uh, people were dying daily for weeks on end. And it's not a large place. And so he's, he's dealing with that and, and struggling with how to do ministry in the midst of crisis. Um, he holds his daughter in his arms as she takes her last breath. He's forced to flee and hide in uh, a fortress. Um, let's see if this will work here. Nope. Not working. Can we just move to the... There. The, the curtains slowly peel back. Matt told me, you have fancy PowerPoints. And I said, this is just regular for me. This isn't even the fanciest. Um, and so, um, so you have a... This is Vit, uh, Vartburg, a castle in which he has to hide in uh, for several months. This is where he'll translate the uh, New Testament into German. For the first time, the Germans are able to actually read their Bible in their common language. It's not in Latin and, and only for the church. Um, this is where he's going to, to, in a sense, hide out because he has a death sentence on him. In fact, um, it was allowable that if anybody met Luther anywhere, they could kill him without punishment. He was under that kind of a death sentence. And, and part of the reason he's hiding up in this, uh, this castle, this fortress, uh, is to protect his life as, uh, as, as the, the, the city started to kind of think through, how do we, how do we handle this rogue who uh, is preaching and teaching the Bible? And as he's translating, and as he's dealing with all of the things around him in his life kind of feeling like it's always in turmoil, whether physically, and he had significant physical issues, or uh, external to him uh, as he sees the, the world around him crumble, he pens a mighty fortress during this time. In fact, uh, this, this psalm is so special to Luther that when his buddy Philip Melanchthon would come to him and deliver him uh, some sad and, and troubling news, he would say, come, let us sing the 46th Psalm. Ein feste Burg ist unser Gott. This psalm is going to be a reminder, and it gives us actually reasons to place our trust, our confidence in God during the most difficult times in our life. It's going to be a celebration of God's power over all the natural and supernatural elements of this world. One of my favorite uh, verses in the New Testament is he in Hebrews chapter 1, in which it talks about the Son who has created all things and, and uh, is heir to all things. But it also says that he upholds all things. And that's not like he's just kind of grabbing it and holding it together. The term that's used really is talking about um, the fact that he carries it to its logical conclusion, that, that all of time and history and the ages and stages and everything in it is moving towards God's plan. Psalm 46 reminds us of that. This psalm holds out a promise that there's coming a time when there will be no wars, when there will be no devastations, no more chaos, for our Lord will reign over the earth in righteousness, in justice, you think about it this way, the God who will bring everlasting peace 
in the future brings peace into our lives today. That's what this psalm will remind us about. Let's pray. Lord, help us as we think through and as we work through this psalm. Help us to be reminded of your protection, that you are a fortress. You are our rest in security. That we can be confident because of who you are. Remind us that not only are you a fortress, but Lord, help us to remember that in every day and in every way that you are present within us and with us. That your presence brings us hope. And Lord, remind us that all of this should push us to worship you. To recognize, even in the midst of crisis, who you are. And to praise you for that. And to think of the future, of what will be and what is to come. And to rejoice as we long for a time in which this world will be ruled by a righteous king. Lord, we pray, Maranatha, come quickly. In your son's name, amen. Psalm 46 says this, Our God is a refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains should shake into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, and the mountains quake at its swelling pride, Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling place of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be shaken. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms shake. He has raised his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob, our stronghold, Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow. He cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold, Selah. And so, as we kind of come to this psalm, kind of prepped in a sense of uh, not only our current situation, but realizing that people throughout history have dealt with chaos and pestilence and crisis, both internal and external, we're reminded of a couple things. And so, as we start to think through Psalm 46, I, I just have, in essence, three easy points. Uh, I'm a preacher by heart, even though I'm a professor now at a university. And so you have to have three points or three Ps and a poem, right? I mean, that's usually how sermons go. And so if you don't have three Ps and a poem, you know, you get marked off in school uh, for not having the, the correct format. I do have three Ps, actually, um, but no poem because that's just not me. Think about it this way. First, we're going to be reminded of God's protection, that in the moments of crisis, 
that we can rest in security, knowing who our God is. So this aspect of protection. Then the psalmist is going to move. And, and, and actually, this, I'm not just forcing three Ps here or three points or three movements. They're all formulated around the selahs, the, the pauses for a musical interlude. If, if this is a song, a praise to Yahweh, if this is uh, God's people singing to him, then we're to pause at each of these moments or stanzas, each of these sections, pause, selah, and think about what we've just read or sung. And so this first P is, is, a, is an aspect of protection. The second P is a reminder of God's presence. And in fact, four through seven are going to do just that with repetition, that God is in the midst. He is with us. And then the last Selah, the last section, the last portion is going to be God's power. Protection, presence, power. Real simple, three points. I'm telling you ahead of time so that way when we get there, you're ready for it. The first, the protection of God. Well, one of the things that, that makes this psalm a bit challenging is it, this psalm is actually... Am I allowed to move? Is that okay? Okay. Um, this psalm is... It's a bit hard. I mean, there are some parts of it that, that are easy. There's some parts of it that, yeah, okay, God is a refuge. God is our strength. Amen, amen. We can move on. But this psalm actually has a whole lot more attached to it. This psalm talks about the ceasing of wars. It talks about supernatural destruction, that the things that we think are the most stable in life, the mountains that you cannot move, should shake and tumble into the sea. It, it pictures eschatological moments of when God comes back and pours out wrath on his enemies, finishes wars in its entirety, establishes his presence among people, and reminds us that if God can be a refuge in the most difficult part of world history, which is still yet to come, regardless of the Black Plague, regardless of COVID-19, whatever the next pestilence may be, whatever the next international crisis may be, pales in comparison to the seven-year tribulation in which God will pour out His wrath on the earth. And if God can be a protection and a security, and a fortress. And if his presence can be an encouragement along the way, in the most difficult time of human history, it's kind of a greater to lesser argument, then he will be those things in your current crisis and distress. The first point, the protection of God. Kind of focuses our attention where people can rest secure in God. He's our refuge. He's our strength. Three things are kind of pointed out here as we, we look at the first verse. 
The very first verse, God is our refuge, a place of security, a a place of safety. God is our strength, our, our source of strength. Our strength comes from him and not within us, but him. And then the next one I, I think is a, a really fascinating portion of this verse. In the NASB, it, it says a very present help in times of, of trouble. Um, the, the sermon title is ever-present help. But, but it literally means abundantly available for help in times of trouble. Abundantly available to help us in times of trouble. It's not like God's busy, you know, making sure everything doesn't fall apart, and then he just kind of quickly notices, and he says, oh, you know, I should probably give a little bit of help there, um, you know, when I'm not too busy. No, it is this idea that he is always an ever-present help, abundantly ready to offer help. And then verse 2. This one, this one kind of shocks me a little bit personally. And you're like, Jason, why does this shock you? Right? You're thinking that. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and the mountains shake into the heart of the sea. The waters roar and foam, and the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Why is that shocking? Well, first and foremost, you would assume, you would anticipate that after this big declaration that, that God is a refuge, God is our strength, He is abundantly available in times of trouble, that the next verse will be a command. Therefore, do not fear, right? That just makes sense. Who God is, well, this is how you respond. But that's quite, not quite the grammar that's used here. It's not a command. It's actually a statement. Therefore, we will not fear. <laughs> the psalmist responds in confidence. Why? Why, why shouldn't he fear? We will not fear. There's an emphasis on such a trust that it just naturally moves us to not fearing. I mean, it's not a command to be afraid. It's a statement that we aren't afraid. Now, for us, it, it is a bit of an exhortation. It is a, a bit of a challenge. It is a bit of a confrontation of, of uh, I don't know about you, but my heart tends to be unsettled uh, in these last eight months. I've really struggled more than any time in my life um, about the certain freedoms that I've lost, the frustrations of wearing a mask, um, even though I'll, uh, you know, I'll, I'll break out my Star Wars mask just because to be different, um, especially on a uh, college campus, a Bible campus. And, and so, you know, the, the challenges of teaching on Zoom, the challenges of, of being outside all the time for church and, and not being able to fellowship the way that I want, um, the, the issues with the presidential race and, and, uh, and all the chaos that comes in. And I think it, it just reminds us where our confidence needs to be. Not in a president, not in an election, not in our government, not even in our relationships. But we have confidence in our God, who is our place of protection, that we rest in him. Now, I know you all know that. But it is a challenge in the midst of all the crisis around us to be reminded 
that there is rest and security in our God. Though the mountains shake into the sea. The very things on earth that seem the most stable in all of earth around us. You, you don't walk by a mountain fearful that it's going to fall upon you. Um, you don't, you don't, you're not by the coastline with those, with those large mountains jetting out, fearing that they're just going to tumble into the sea. The waters raging, uh, and, it, and it has this kind of idea of chaos. It's not just like the waves crashing. It's like the whole sea is in a chaotic form of tsunamis and, 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 uh, and all of the, the violent, chaotic raging that that would, would look at. That basically the things we take for granted as being somewhat normal and stable actually are no longer. Uh, turn with me, if you will, just as we think through this, Isaiah 24 Isaiah 24 actually gives a picture of this in some fascinating terminology. Isaiah 24 to 27 is known as the little apocalypse of Isaiah. In fact, it's kind of like a microcosm of the book of Revelation. When you think of the book of Revelation, you think of all these judgments and uh, um, cataclysmic events that that are on a a natural and supernatural uh, level. Isaiah, um, well before Revelation was written... Uh, predicts the very things that come about in Revelation 6 through 19. So in Isaiah 24, verse 1, he says, Behold, the Lord lays the earth waste, devastates it, distorts its surface, scatters its inhabitants. The people will be like priests, the, the servant like his master, the maid like her mistress, the buyer like the seller, the lender like the borrower, the creditor like the debtor. The earth will be completely laid waste, completely despoiled, for the Lord has spoken his word. The earth mourns and withers, the world fades and withers. The exalted of the people of the earth fade away. (laughs) Sometimes I read this on Earth Day in my class. (laughs) Verse 17, terror and pit and snare confront you, O inhabitants of the earth. Then it will be he who flees the report of disaster will fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit will be caught in a snare. For the windows above are opened, and the foundations of the earth shake. The earth is broken asunder. It is split through. It is shaken violently. It reels to and fro like a drunkard, and it totters like a shack, for its transgressions is heavy upon it, and it will fall never to rise again. So it will be in that day that the Lord of hosts will punish the host of heaven on high, that that God will actually punish the supernatural realm, the demonic, and he's also going to punish the kings of the earth, on the earth. That's Revelation 19, friends. They will be gathered together like prisoners in a dungeon and will be confined in prison, and after many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed, For the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. Now, part of the reason I went to Isaiah 24 is it kind of helps us get our our mind around what the psalmist is actually pointing to from a biblical perspective, a theological perspective, a biblical theological perspective, is that the psalmist is looking to when the end of the world comes and the chaos with that and the judgment and everything shattering and falling, we can trust and rest in this one. Our confidence is grounded in the fact 
that God is our protector, our place of refuge, and the one who gives us strength. So we don't need to fear the circumstances that we face. And you think about it this way. There's one firm foundation when the world is collapsing. And that is our mighty fortress, our God, our refuge, abundantly available to help. One of the challenges that I think we have is when we get into crisis, when we get into challenges, when we get into uh, issues, whether it's health-related, financial, relationships, all the things that we've struggled with and will at some point, it's all too often to, to focus Our focus is all too often on the circumstances, the situations around us, and and not on our God. And so, just from a practical perspective, there's one thing that you can do to help uh, formulate and shape your mind to think on who your God is, who your refuge is. And I would just encourage you to, to take it, like if you find yourself challenged in running to your refuge, that you take time to study about your refuge. In other words, that you look at who your God is, that you learn who your God is. Not kind of Christian platitudes and and nice sayings, but actually delve into the attributes of who this refuge is that is abundantly available for times of help. In other words, study the attributes of God, the omnipotence, the omnipresence, the omniscience, the wisdom, sovereignty, holiness, merciful, compassionate God. That's the first point. The second, the presence of God. Now, this one really kind of focuses our, our attention to hope. That in times of crisis, God's people have hope because He is with us. And the psalmist actually emphasized it multiple times in just 11 verses. Look really quickly, if you will, in verse 4. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. And so the emphasis is on where God dwells, where He lives, His temple presence. Verse 5, God is in the midst of her. Again, That's an emphasis on presence. Verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. That's an emphasis of presence. Verse 11, the Lord of hosts is with us. Again and again and again, the, the psalmist reminds us again in repetition, which is always a way that an author will emphasize. In repetition, that God is present with us. You, you think of um, this concept is that, that our hope is not in a place, but in our triune God. Like, our hope is not in heaven. Our hope is not in an eternal bliss. Our hope is in God, and we spend eternity with Him. The presence of God is where our hope is rooted. You you think of verse 4. It's a bit 
of a challenge, right? There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. And you're like, what in the world is verse 4 talking about? Is it metaphorical? Is it physical? What's, what's going on here? And if you know Jerusalem, and, and if you ever get a chance to go to Israel, I would recommend it wholeheartedly because it just gives you a visual of all these psalms that you'll read and the gospel accounts and kind of visualizing there. If you go to Israel and you go to Jerusalem, you realize there is no major river flowing from Jerusalem. In fact, most cities in the ancient world would be built around a major river. You think about Rome, right? You have a major river that flows through Rome or uh, even England today, a major river that flows through London. Um, Not so in Jerusalem. They had a little spring the spring of Gihon. And that spring would, would trickle down and pool into the pool of Siloam. In fact, when you go to Israel, not if, but when you go to Israel, and you get into Hezekiah's tunnel, and you're kind of wading through knee-high water, that's the spring um, being channeled down to the pool so people can draw water out of it. And so you have this idea here, though, that in some time in the future, there's actually going to be rivers that rush out of Jerusalem. And this starts to kind of develop a, a theological understanding, a, an eschal, eschatological understanding. And, and here's just a couple of pictures for you, if, if you like pictures. Here's this temple that Joel and Zechariah and Ezekiel all talk about, this temple of water flowing out of it. In fact, uh, Ezekiel is going to describe, uh, I'm sorry, Joel will describe this, this spring that will come out of the house of the Lord where he is present in the future. Not a little trickle. And then Zechariah will talk about a river flowing from Jerusalem when the Lord will be king over all the earth. Probably the, the most fascinating and, and quite uh, challenging to wrap your minds around is Ezekiel, right? 47. And we don't have time to, to get into all that's here, but, but what you have is this river that's flowing out of the temple where God is present, at least from the Old Testament perspective, that Yahweh is there, the river is flowing out, and the river actually is creating life. It's going to flow out of Jerusalem and go into the Dead Sea, and it's called the Dead Sea because things are dead. And it's going to bring life to the Dead Sea. If you're ever in, in Israel and you go into Dead Sea, don't open your eyes underwater. It's 30% salt. Your eyes will melt and burn. But this river is going to flow. And it's going to become fresh. And there's going to be life. Now... Why do we talk about that? The presence of God brings life. Revelation 21 and 22 will talk about that. It has Edenic connections to the, the river flowing out of God's presence. Again, it's an encouragement. The Lord is with us. The Lord is present. There's life-giving aspects to this. He's in the midst You're studying Matthew, and you have this concept here of the beginning and the end of Matthew emphasizes something significant. Matthew chapter 1, you will name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. But the very 
presence of God is manifested in the person of Christ. And then at the end of Matthew, you have this emphasis of go out into all the nations, teaching and proclaiming and baptizing and making disciples, because lo, I will be with you until the end of the age. So even in the Gospel of Matthew, you have an emphasis on God being present with us. And you have this interesting connection here. Verse 2, it has the mountains shaking and falling into the sea. Verse 6 has the kingdoms shaking. But verse 5, the same Hebrew term, where God is in the midst, it will not be shaken. The mountains may shake. The nations may, in an uproar, shake. But where God is, you will not be moved or shaken. And you have, again, an encouragement that we can have hope, even in the midst of disaster, because of God's presence. And verse 6 it shows that the nations make an uproar, the kingdoms shake, his voice is raised, and the earth melts. In essence, it has kind of this... Um, we don't have time, but if we went to Psalm 2, uh, you read Isaiah 11, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, or Revelation 19, all have kind of um, an interconnectedness of this idea that when God shows up and he raises his voice and he speaks, he will slay the wicked. He will destroy his enemies. The very God who spoke things into existence will speak and destroy with his breath those who rise up against him. That's the God who is an ever-ready, abundantly available help and present with us. As believers, the very Holy Spirit indwelling us. The next, the power of of God. The power of God. In times of crisis, God's people should worship Him, and part of that is because we respond based on what He does. You think about it this way. Verses 8 and 10 are the only two commandments in the whole psalm. Verse 8, come and behold the works of the Lord. That's worship-oriented. Verse 10, see striving. Stop. Relax. It has this idea of relaxing the hand. And know that I am God. There's something important here. and You might not notice it right away, but, but there's something important in the sense that he has spent seven verses to show you who your God is before he calls you to action. It's the who... Then the what? I mean, legalism is just simply outward, mere adherence to something. But true obedience is a heart of worship. It's legalism obeys outwardly, but does not endure, adore inwardly. And so what the psalmist is doing is he's saying, this is who your God is. Therefore, this is how we respond. We respond in worship. It's the who, then the what. And in this case, trust 
and worship. Come behold the works of the Lord. Who has wrought desolations in the earth and makes war to cease to the ends of the earth and breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two and burns the chariot with fire? He will wage a war that will end all wars. And sometimes when you think of God as a refuge, you don't really think of him as one who on one hand also destroys his enemies. But that's a part of the package. I mean, there's a lot of worship songs that talk about God's grace and his mercy and his kindness. There's not a whole lot of worship songs that talk about his wrath. We don't, we don't gather around usually, you know, and, and to the tune of In Christ Alone, right? Uh, the wrath of God poured out on all. You know, like, we don't really sing that. But God actually is to be worshiped, both in his justice and righteousness and his mercy. And that's what the psalmist is pointing us to. He's pointing us to a reminder of what is to come. That the Lord, verse 10, will be exalted among the nations. He will set up a kingdom and he will rule. You think of it this way, there's a kind of revelation connection. If we had time, I'd, I'd kind of uh, unpack this a little bit more. But uh, when you think of revelation, you think of wars and famine and death. Right? Revelation is, is a tough book to wrap your mind around. You think of hail, like 100-pound hailstones crushing people, fire and meteors and comets and the sun darkened and demonic plagues. It's kind of like what happened in Egypt in the 10 plagues, only on a grander fashion and worldwide. Painful sores and the death of the sea creatures and rivers turning to blood and scorching heat, darkness and pain and, and the Euphrates uh, drying up and, and the final bowl of God pouring out his wrath. And, and that final bowl is in verse chapter, uh, Revelation chapter 16. He says this, the angel poured out, oh, I got, there we go, the angel poured out his bowl. There were flashes of lightning, sounds, and peals of thunder. There was a great earthquake, such as not had uh, come upon man and upon the earth. And, and so great an earthquake, that, and so mighty, that the city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And Babylon the Great was remembered before God to give her the cup of wine and his fierce wrath. And the islands fled away, and the mountains were not found. Again, that is Psalm 46 language in the future. It reminds us of some key pieces of information, and that is God is absolutely silent. God will judge. God will bring about justice upon the earth, and in doing so, he will cease wars he will cease the chaos. Cataclysmic events will happen, but after that, he will establish a kingdom of righteousness and peace. And his presence will be felt throughout the whole earth. The knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as sea, the sea covers the waters. The waters cover the sea, I should say. So what's the application of this amazing psalm? Just three points pretty simple. God's people are secure in him. He's our refuge. He's our strength. He's our rest. 
learn about your refuge. Fall in love with him. Grow to know him so that when times of crisis come, you can hold firm to him. God's people can have hope. You should be reminded that you're not in this alone. You're not struggling by yourself, that, that there is a God who, who will establish a righteous kingdom and he will have a presence on this entire earth, but actually through the Holy Spirit, he indwells you. And he has promised that he will be with you from this day to the age to come. Lo, I will be with you always. God's people should worship for he is a sovereign God. He's in control. So you can understand that when Martin Luther would have really rough days and significantly devastating news or experience the death of his daughter as he holds her and she takes her last breath, that this psalm was an encouragement. This psalm was one in which reminded him that we have a mighty fortress an ever-present help, abundantly available. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you just for the opportunity to be reminded of these key truths. I pray, Lord, that you will help us to remember these things, that you would help us to hold to them, that you would help us to have confidence in you, that we are reminded of who you are that will then impact what we do, that we would adore you for not only the fact that you are a refuge to us, but you will establish your righteous rule. You will restore all things in the future. Lord, we pray this in your son's name. Amen.